You're listening to In the Open, a Mental Health America podcast, a space where we explore mental health and navigate the challenges of life through honest and candid conversation. Hi, everyone. It's America. We're back for another session of In the Open. Teresa's here with me. Hey, y'all. So we're going to be following on in our conversation around mental health and our environments. And today... We're going to be talking about not feeling safe at home. So Teresa and I have talked about this in snippets throughout like the history of our podcast, which is four years. Yeah. So if you're not an active listener, I I grew up with a lot of childhood trauma in my life. I did tell America prior to this call that this particular topic is very (laughs) difficult to me. (laughs) I really don't want to talk about it. But we're going to try. So she's got to just ask me questions because. Yeah, we're going to try. I'm being super avoided. <laughs> but we appreciate you bringing your full self and vulnerability to this, Teresa. So let's talk a little bit at the onset of what it feels like not to feel safe at home. What was that experience like? I also have to apologize for everyone because I'm coming off a strep throat infection. But I think I remember just feeling paralyzed. Like home is supposed to be a place where you feel comfortable and you feel safe. And to start off, like first, I didn't live with my parents. My parents were poor. And I think in some communities, there's a big practice of like sending your children away to live with someone else. Mm -hmm. So when I was in the third grade, I didn't live with my mom and dad anymore. They sent me to go live with another family member. And that family member was not a safe house, right? Like it was an abusive home. And at first it was just like what it meant to be in a foreign space. (laughs) And that that, wasn't your home. Yeah, like not your home. And like looking back, like sending a child to go live somewhere else, like I did not have control over that situation. I knew I was going to live with my family member who I had known, you know, but certainly hadn't lived with them for a long period of time. And then I don't even think I've wrestled with what it meant to live in a house that wasn't yours. Mm-hmm. And to and to be taken care of by people who did not necessarily see you as your own children and what that meant, but then also to grow up because the family member who was particularly abusive in the family, like what I was, I don't, I think that at that moment, all I was doing was surviving when I started to know that it was unsafe, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think at that point, it was the beginning of my mind and my body really compartmentalizing it's hard for me to think back at that time because I've just blocked so much of it. Right. From memory. Just as a a safety mechanism. Yeah, definitely. Certainly memories blocking off periods, but like, just like, so I'm trying to recall all these things, these feelings. And it's like, whoa, that feels weird. (laughs) Because you spend your whole life basically ignoring the issue. I, I think that's why it's also hard to like talk about it today because I have not done this work. This is maybe one of those things that I haven't, I've done a lot of therapy and I've processed through a lot of things, but this is one thing I know I have not, I've not, I can, I can tell it's like, yeah, it's definitely something I just experienced, put it in a shelf, put it on the shelf and was like, whatever, work through all the other stuff that's going to be like impacting your life way more than this. 
So you all are literally listening to me unpack this live, <laughs> like what it probably would be like in therapy if I had chosen to go to therapy for this issue. But, you know, you, you talk about um, several different things that tie into this larger messaging around safety. One is really this idea of oftentimes in your example, you were sent to live with someone else. Right. And I think that occurs a lot for different reasons, whether your parents don't have the capacity to be able to like have you at home with them. Maybe you are, you're a child of immigrants and they're in a different country and they send you here to live with X person with the idea, I would imagine belief that they're going to take care of you, but also on a whim, right? Like let's hope that it works out. There are like no other options, you know? And you know, the other piece of what you you talk about is recognizing once not you're not going into it, right? But you're recognizing there's something isn't right where you've situated yourself. The feelings of unsafety. Um, I have not had that experience, right? I have felt luckily I have felt from the beginning that my parents were very supportive and we were able to immigrate to the United States together. So we weren't separated in that way. But I have experienced times when I felt unsafe in other places and had to understand like why in in, in places that were, you know, other family homes and things like that, that it's really hard to put into words like, I just know something isn't right. Yeah. In terms of feelings, you know, I think you probably relate to this, but just like I remember as a child feeling tense, Mm -hmm. feeling stressed all the time, especially if I was, you know, home on my way to go home, Mm -hmm. knowing that I was going to be home and then knowing that that person was going to be home. Like I I, I can recall spaces in time when if I came home and nobody was home, it was like breathing a sigh of relief. Mm hmm. Or like if somebody comes home and they're in a particular mood, mm-hmm. you know, that feeling of fear where the skin, your hair just like stands up on your back, you know? Yeah. Um, and then nights. Nights were scary for me. So then like I there, there were a lot of rituals for me at night about how to protect myself or like plan ahead mm-hmm. to be safe, you know? And so I think what's hard too is knowing that that I sustain this for years, Mm-hmm. As an adult, looking back, I'm like, okay, wow, no wonder you live with like complex PTSD and anxiety that that's just like it's not ever going to go away. Like I don't mm-hmm. – that's something to really work through. But for me, where this issue also gets really hard is I have had times in my life where CPS was called. Mm-hmm. Even now when we write articles and supports for people on our website at mhascreening.org, sometimes you say like, oh, go talk to a trusted adult. Right. And for me, that's a real challenge because I didn't know who a trusted adult was. Mm -hmm. School wasn't safe. Home wasn't safe. I did not have trusted adults. Right. Yeah. And and when CPS was called, it was because like something else happened. Like somebody else was also getting hurt. And then CPS was called. Or and then or somehow I I said something to someone and they said it to someone so you know a mandated report got called but that that experience also didn't like it did it wasn't cool <laughs> right right like, like it triggers mechanisms that are supposed to assist you but 
the consequences of that can be even longer lasting because of how it how they play out the home environment. Yeah. Yeah, like how that played out. Like I don't know yeah. why when CPS was called, they called me and they called me abuser. And then he, that person called me. You know, it was like so awkward and I'm I'm like I'm I'm in the third grade trying to negotiate right. this. And the only lesson I learned at that age when I was so young was like, shut your mouth. Don't say yeah, anything. Don't tell anybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And like you're going to be gaslit because people are going to basically tell you you're a liar or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that that's a common experience, though, in what you're sharing, Teresa, that maybe it's not through your own doing, right, that somebody has noticed something and they want to try to help. And with all that goodness of, of trying to help it's like the dominoes that are falling, right? Like the one thing is initiated and there's all these other pieces that come into play that ultimately end up being, they, it can be that it's more damaging yeah. because you go back to the situation that is wasn't helpful in the first place. It's not safe. And you're, you're being put back into this cycle of having to manage your own self. And what, at third grade, what are you, eight, nine years old? <laughs> Like looking back now of 40, thinking about what how old I was in third grade, I'm like, oh, I was a baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it's and I do reflect now and I think like, okay, well, what honestly, I think because there are some people who had CPS called and that did help them. Like mm-hmm. they were able to get out of an unsafe situation. And I, I wonder like, oh, well, what if what would have happened if CPS was involved where I had control? Maybe mm-hmm. I was the one that initiated. I had the ability to think through that and prepare myself and be a little more in control and not caught off guard. Yeah, but that's a lot, babe. Even even as an adult. I mean, I'm you. already handling a lot, right? That's that's right. that's the problem with living in an unsafe house. Yeah. You grow up really fast. You grow up early. You're uh, yeah. early as hell I was negotiating things children shouldn't negotiate. Mm-hmm. I was already dealing with really difficult decisions, but at that time there was no awareness. Like I, I, I couldn't, I could not have made that decision. I mean, that's what you're saying. That's what you're saying. I'm getting defensive for myself. Everybody can hear that. <laughs> but what you're saying is like I'm a baby, and if you're if you're dealing with an abusive household, like I was literally just surviving day by day. I, I could not make a decision. I don't even know that in fifth grade or sixth grade, I, I would have even. I, I would have had the awareness or f- could figure out even at that age, you know, I, I don't think I had enough sense, honestly, until high school, the between eighth grade and ninth grade, I had some awareness that I had control and I had decisions that I could make to remove myself from unsafe situations. And then I had enough inside of me, like whatever that is, confidence or like, I think it was like, I can make a decision to leave to be safe or I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. Because I had had suicidal thoughts since I was 11. But like living in that situation from like 8 to 11, depression and suicidal thoughts coming on at 11 years old, between 11 and 13, being like, okay, I'm at this transition. I'm either going to leave or I'm just going to die. Like I'm going to choose to die because this is not a solution. Like living in this continued situation is not okay, you know? And I, I think that high school, I remember the choice and I remember the conversation and I remember having enough awareness to protect myself occurring at that age. I hear in, in your voice how how difficult it is for you to talk about this. And I and I also think when you explore this and the way you're able to reflect back on it, 
right? Yeah. Your language is very different. Yeah. And and that's okay. Like right? robotic, for, I could tell. Yeah, I'm going yeah. to robotic protective Teresa for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. like, you know, I was creating all these boundaries and I was <laughs> able to recognize these things. And, and that's great that you're able to do that because that's what's needed for you to be able to process what we're talking about. But I also think it's really important to recognize the reality of how deep that hurt is when you're having to manage all of this. Are you trying to show me compassion and empathy? (laughs) Because it's what a human being does. At 11-year-olds, you having to manage, should I keep myself safe or just keep quiet? That is so hard to even think about. Yeah. And... I know that you said you put this on a shelf, right? Like it's not touched. But in all the years that I've known you, right, and that we've been working together, it, it's in a box, but it's had like his little fingers are like peeking out and, totally. it's, and it's touching on everything, right? Yeah. How does so, it affect me today? <laughs> right. It affects your relationships, the way that you have then moved into your adulthood, recognizing all that trauma. I mean, it, honestly, like it's interesting because it affected me when I started having relationships. And this is something I always knew. But when I get into a fight with my partner and I feel like he's pushing me into a corner, mm-hmm. I flip into a rage that even he's like, what the hell? This is not you. Mm-hmm. That rage I know is like is a reaction to not feeling safe as a child. Mm-hmm. Like the only way to protect yourself is to and and that's part of what developed too in high school was like, okay, well, once I knew I had space, could take up space and was a bigger person, I could use anger as power to claim space, to protect myself. Right, and that was a boundary. And that was powerful. Like I remember mm-hmm. the first time I fought back with this person and it was so powerful to not be in a position of not having power. But that carried over into my adulthood where like I would perceive threats with my partner when threats were not at that level. I know that my extreme reaction and anger and my challenge in controlling my anger is related to all that, like how good it yeah. felt to have power and to protect myself, but also like to have that response to be protective of when I felt unsafe because I didn't have models either of like normal anger reactions. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, totally. What my parents, I love them. They never fought in front of me, but because they never fought in front of me, they also never showed me what repair looked like. Right. But then when people are abusive, they also only ever showed me the other way. Like when somebody screams at you and like hits you, you just shut up or hide. Like you make yourself small. You avoid, just try not to get in that situation to begin with. Yeah, I think what you touch on is is you know some of the aspects that I I have not dealt with personally, but in working with some folks when they have been in abusive relationships with their partner, that when you really dig deep, it's tied to a lot of the trauma that exists in childhood. But you get to this place, and you're talking about modeling, right? When and oftentimes this is the case, right? When you have um, interpersonal violence and you know you get to this place where you're like oh this person loves me and they treat me well and 
all the other pieces that are escalated where they are harming you or manipulating you and doing all of these things you accept because <laughs> you think you deserve it. Why are you bring up my 20s? <laughs> Damn. We're going down your timeline. Um, no, for sure. I've had so, I've had, and that makes me mad because you're like, I'm a child of childhood abuse. And in my 20s, I put myself in relationships where I'm like, why was I so accepting of emotional abuse, you know? Right. Because I grew up in a violent household. I have a lot like alcoholism where I have like really bad measures for how much alcohol someone should drink. I also have like really bad measures for what a good relationship looked like for a long time. I was like, oh, well, basically, if they're not hitting me or screaming at me or terrorizing me, that must be love. Right, right. <laughs> That's love. <laughs> That's so stupid. Right. I mean, I, I use that word stupid because I, I have to. I have to like set it up to be prof like big like that to push myself to a space where I can learn healthy boundaries. <laughs> It took me a long time to learn, like into my thirties. But all of that, I think, is relevant, right, to this discussion. When you, when you come to understand, and in many ways, one you've talked about, like the boundary that you recognize that you had as a as a person that could protect themselves in a very different way than an eight year old, where I'm going to use every single force in my being through anger, through through my body, to show you this isn't okay anymore. And then you move into the space because you haven't had these models that are just like, you you just want to accept, right, what's given to you because you deserve it. You deserve to be treated well. But when that is under the guise of, oh, everything's fabulous and look, I'm smiling. And then somebody turns around and like hits you, says crap to you that is so damaging. Yeah then again, you've had to relearn another boundary later on, right? Yeah. And what what sticks out to me in all of this is like your wherewithal to consistently, even from when you were a little one, to say something's not right. You knew that. Yeah. And you kept you kept yourself safe in whatever capacity you could. And I think that's the that's the thing about creating an environment, whether it's at home or otherwise, right? Where you recognize you have value. And that's why it's so hard for you to receive my compassion. No, always, remember? This yeah. is always. <laughs> my childhood home, the safety at your home, the way that it screws up your thought process. Yeah. Is the is one of the hardest things to kind of untangle. Because mm -hmm. it... I mean, when we talk about like, oh, your core beliefs or like reframing your negative thoughts, like it's still a process for me to believe that I have worth. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, it's not their fault, but that starts with whether or not my mom wanted me as a child, whether or not when they couldn't take care of me and then all that. You know what I mean? So it's all, yeah, it's all tied up together, but. But what some one thing you said was interesting to me, like triggered a thought, which is how did I create safe spaces? Because you were like, you said that I knew it wasn't safe and it's true. So outside of trying to set things up in the house, either through avoidance or protective or like, you know, I set up things in my home to to know if my space was 
invaded in ways that I wasn't mm. things like that, you know, like things that are so similar to clients I've had who have been have experienced home invasions, you know, like I had a client who put a bricks up by her door with a glass so that if somebody came in, she would have an early warning. I was like, damn, mm-hmm. I remember doing th- treatment with her and thinking, dang, that's really triggering that memory because it reminds me of when I was little. But um, I also, it's weird because we grew up in an immigrant family and so it wasn't also common to visit friends. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't allowed to have sleepovers. But I knew when I was young, it wasn't like just that I wanted to do that because it was fun and I was missing out. But that it's weird, right? You're like, oh, people protect you from other homes. But it's like, I'm going to go to this person's house because it's safer than my house, you know, or being outside. It was like, I'm going to go outside because if I could just ride my bike and be outside for as long as Mm -hmm. I can, great. I'm just away. Um, School. In some ways, school wasn't – when I say school is not a safe space is because I didn't – I was such a quiet kid, obviously, because I was experiencing trauma at the home. I was so quiet. Like, my teachers didn't even know I existed. I could literally stay outside after recess, and my teachers did not know that I did not come back in for recess. And once in a while, I would just experiment with that. I would just not go stay back. Stay outside. Yeah. But at least school was somewhere where, you know, I, I did. I was not – I was not being, like, actively hurt. So that was nice. But, you you know, and what you're sharing makes me think of um, some examples of of my life where there, there was a, um, you know, there was a family member that I wasn't terrified of him, but I, I was fully aware of him. So when, he, you know, when I would be at like their house and it was like the time for them to come home. I would be like, oh, my God, I wish my mom was picking me up like right now, you know, and I what you're talking about making yourself small, like I remember trying to do that. So I, I would not be in his field of vision. Exactly. So many other times my mom would then say, oh, you should go to their house. And I'd be like, no, I would make some stupid ass excuse of, you know. Yep. And after a while, my mom stopped, like kind of pushing me to go. Yeah. But years years later when i was an adult i had this conversation with not that family member or like their their kid and i was like do you remember that and it was so jarring because they were on the receiving end it was scary you know and and them recognizing that too you know some of the things that then trickle into how then you create safety for yourself and and the triggers that are there that you don't even know are triggers yeah until it happens and then you're like Ugh. yeah my husband often says i'm cold people might have heard me say that but mm-hmm. one of my coping mechanisms part of being small is withdrawing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. dissociating not dissociating anymore i have dissociated where i was just literally not present in my brain but now it's just cutting off emotions so right. if i don't feel safe or I don't like what's happening. I'm very good at just cutting off emotions. <laughs> I would prefer to feel nothing than to feel fear, to feel anger, to feel sadness, because that's easier or better than the overwhelmingness of and not knowing how to deal with the overwhelming feelings that one has when you never, when your feelings or your emotions went from zero to a hundred for your whole life. 
Yeah. And that's why. That's why it's just easier for me to shut off. It's also protective in some ways because it's better. Like, let me take a break. <laughs> yeah. Like, it definitely it, it trickles um, into all of the things that occurred today. And then, you know, the other thing that you talked about was, like, going to friends' houses. When I was growing up, you know, I was aware that other kids had very difficult situations at home. And they would spend hours, hours outside. I couldn't do that, right? Like I had a curfew. I had to be home. And then I'd be like, well, I have to go home. And they'd be like, okay, I'm just going to go hang out at the playground. And I'd be like, but it's nighttime. Like, what do you mean? You know, like very naive and, and, and not understanding what was going on until, until later. But also recognizing in that space, there were different people, not my parents, not their parents, but like an aunt or another community member that people would just go and hang around with them so that there was some sort of connection and safety. Yeah, if you're lucky to have that. And yeah. sometimes there isn't even that, which is why no, the playground, right? <laughs> or for me, just the street, the cul-de-sac. Um, and then immediately going from outdoors to the bedroom, you know, or yeah. like eat dinner, do your chores and just go to a space, wherever it is that is your private space. I think where this, um, you know, this time and space of when you're a kid and you're trying to create safety and you're growing into like your adolescent self and all that, there is this um, pull, right, to try to find safety. And, And I know in the communities where I grew up, that was like the gang life, right? Like you found camaraderie, you found safety in that world. And you gravitated towards it because they were just like, come on in, we're going to we're going to receive you, you know, as you are. Where even your sense of danger is totally yeah. off because yeah. I grew up in dangerous neighborhoods, but I was like, I don't know, these neighborhoods don't seem dangerous to me because the house life is worse. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah. I'll stay outside even though, you know, yeah, it was definitely not a safe neighborhood. Yeah. So yeah, at an early age, I think a lot of my measures for what might be normal or safe were really off. Um, and it took me a while to understand the impact of, of that. What does that mean now, Teresa, when, when you've, when you've created a home, how do you set yourself up and, and your family, how do you set yourselves up to create a space where you feel safe? I communicate with my children about safe adults, safe situation, safety. I don't hide from telling them. And I tell, you know, I'm very vocal about having open and transparent conversations with my children so that if something happens, they know that I'm somewhere to go. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, I think it's still a constant battle. I, I I have a lot of internal dialogues about like, am I warm enough with my children? You know, like mm-hmm. I think that I'm a cold mother. Like if my husband says I'm a cold person, well, maybe I'm also a cold cold mother. Like I don't show affection because I don't know what that looks like. I mean, I'm trying, but so even if I'm doing a good job, I think my brain is still telling me that I'm not. Hmm. I know that I've created a safe environment. I apologize when I something that I, I realize like you can blow up. Like I felt bad if I got impatient and I and I did something. But I think apologizing is a big deal. I have to show what it means to if we blow up, if we have moments like that, 
that can happen. It doesn't mean that I'm abusive. I can't create a habit of it. If I apologize, I can't keep going back to my children and just apologizing. That's abusive, right? And basically show that your words mean nothing. But that took me a while too, even as an adult. I would I would get impatient and recognizing that that anger was even spilling out with my children for whom I don't want that to be. I don't want to do that with my kids. But, you know, I think some of it I don't know if I'm making an excuse, but I feel like some of it's understandable. Like as parents, you're going to get impatient. I think when you think about safety, you've talked about being open with your kids. And I think that's something that's very important. You know, even with with my stepdaughter and like my niece and my nephew who are like huge in my life, we've always been very upfront with them. And, you know, one, recognizing the safety of their person, their body, what does that look like? And being able to have that conversation so that they do know, like, whatever it is, you you can come and talk to me. Like, I'm not going to blame you, you know. You just have to tell me so that we can try to do something about it. The The other piece, though, and the, this idea of, like, apologizing, I think it's it's very important when you talk about how you didn't have models, right, that taught you. Like what it's like to be in an argument and then repair instead of like, oh, be in an argument, everything's over, nothing's going to work, right? And and we've had to do that as well. We're, we're like, it is so normal for us to engage in a conversation where we, we may get a little heated and we have to tell the kids, right? Like this does not mean that we do not love one another, right? Yeah. Like we still love one another. We can say what we need to say, but we have to be able to say it in a way that we feel heard. Not that that means we have to raise our voices, but you know, yeah. all of that. And it, it's important as we explore what, what we can continue to do for ourselves in relationships, for our families. But at, at the, like the meat of that is yeah. how you are helping yourself. Yeah, we force children to apologize to each other all the time, but do they actually see you apologize <laughs> to each other? Do they see you apologize to them? And I don't think most adults are good at apologizing to one another because we, even the way we were taught how to apologize as children is like this forced thing, you know, um, instead of learning what it means to acknowledge your fault, to say that I'm genuinely sorry about something and that I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to work hard on not doing that again. I'm not that great at apologizing. I'm working <laughs> on it. I am. I am working on it. Many um, people aren't. <laughs> it, it's hard because it requires vulnerability. And for all different reasons, not tied to the topic today, you know, I don't like vulnerability. But, you know, I appreciate you, your willingness to talk about this, given how, how heavy a topic it is. And hopefully, you know, it helps others. But I don't know. Do you have any final thoughts? This is a processing podcast for me. So I will say, I looking inward, I feel a little lighter. And that is the benefit of therapy. I feel like I've taken some of those things off my shelf and I've let them go. I don't know what exactly or if it's just the sentiment, the feeling of it. So it's really helpful and probably a sign these are things I should continue to work on. But that's all I can do today. And I'm okay with that. You know, what stuck out for me is um, how hard we have to, as individuals, consistently allow for others to share compassion. 
it's okay for you to feel like somebody cares for you. And it's really hard to do that. But yeah, it's really important. Okay, maybe part of the compassion, at least what sticks out to me, it's really hard to hold on to, but just how safe you feel at your home and the way you react to it is tied to how old you are. And part of yeah. you having compassion for me and living, letting myself have compassion for myself is I don't know how old you are listening to this podcast, but if you're little, it's okay. A lot of children don't feel safe, but what can hopefully you pick something here to find some safety. And I, I think it would have been nice if I had one person in my life when I was very young who did feel safe. I, I think that would, could, would have and could have changed my life. But I didn't. And that's why when you don't, you just, you learn, you learn how to survive. And that was the best I can do. I don't know, because I didn't feel like there were any other options. So, and then it gets better. I appreciate that I started when I was little, but I ended with being aware of when I had control and that, that got better. It got better. And then they got a lot better, even though things are still hard, you know? So hang in there. Yeah, I would say um, in terms of, of one, you know, a couple of resources that we can give to folks, there are several resources out there, but one that's specific may be childhelphotline.org. You can call, it's 1-800-422-4453, or you can chat with someone. Many of these websites have like an immediate exit out button so that if you're afraid of somebody's, you know, looking at your browser or anything like that, you can X out of it. But keep yourself as, as safe as you can. All right, then. Keep on fighting in the open. If Thanks you can. So. And when you do, it's a real sign of power. <laughs> <laughs>